Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The DOJ saying Trump should not have absolute immunity from civil lawsuits in connection to the January 6th Capitol breach. We'll bring you the details. The Senate passes a bill to declassify intelligence on the origin of COVID-19, what lawmakers say and how the White House responds. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Russia's foreign minister for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine. Find out what the two discussed. In closing arguments today, the defense said Alec Murdoch had no reason to kill his loved ones. The jury will make their decision in the coming days. The first state to ban drag shows in public. Tennessee is on its way to enact a law targeting such performances. The Department of Justice argues in a court filing that former President Trump should not have absolute immunity from civil lawsuits in connection with the January 6, 2021 Capitol breach. This as Democrats push back against House Speaker Kevin McCarthy giving Fox News access to several hours of footage of the events on January 6th. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. Members of Congress and U.S. Capitol Police officers have filed several lawsuits attempting to hold Trump liable for what they say are psychological and physical injuries stemming from January 6th. Trump's lawyers argued that the former president is immune, referencing a Supreme Court ruling that says presidents are absolutely immune from civil damages that come via their official acts as president. The DOJ responding opposed, stating that their position is that Trump is not immune in these civil suits. This comes as a DOJ special counsel is leading a separate federal criminal investigation into Trump. Trump writing on Truth Social, they're not coming for me, they're coming for you. I'm just in their way. This comes amid a heated disagreement between Republicans and Democrats over Speaker McCarthy's decision to hand over 40,000 plus hours of January 6th footage to Fox's Tucker Carlson. House Democrat leader Hakeem Jeffries this week telling reporters that he believes there should be a balance between transparency and protecting security here on Capitol grounds. This led me to ask him if he believes the American people should be shown a more complete picture of the events on January 6th. Here's what he told me. So is it your position that the January 6th committee offered a complete picture of what happened on January 6th, or do you think that more could be shown? Uh, the January 6th committee presented an incredibly comprehensive and thorough picture of what happened on January 6th using a variety of different means, including, yes, video footage, but perhaps even more significantly, the narrative of January 6th was told through the lens of Donald Trump's closest allies who were part of his administration. Democrats have accused McCarthy of being irresponsible and handing over the footage. McCarthy this week told reporters, we work with the Capitol Police as well, so we'll make sure security is taken care of. Because I think sunshine matters, so I don't care what side of the issue you are on. That's why I think putting it out all to the American public, you can see the truth see exactly what transpired that day. As for when the footage will be shown widely, McCarthy says as soon as possible. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. The Senate wants the government to declassify intelligence on the origins of COVID-19. Recent assessments by the FBI and reportedly the Energy Department both point to the Chinese lab leak assessment. 
NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. The Senate passed a bill late Wednesday night, telling the Biden administration to declassify all the information that it has on COVID origins. The legislation was introduced by Republican Senators Mike Braun and Josh Hawley, who say the American people should be able to see the information without any spin. People, it, it's past time. Let's yeah. show them what the government has. Let everybody see for themselves. Let everybody read. And Senator Richard Blumenthal tells NTD that he believes the American people should be able to know the truth about COVID but may never find out due to the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese have been uh, demonstrably non-cooperative and their providing information may well be a condition of our finding. But we should try and never cease trying to find out uh, what the origins were. The White House on Thursday would not say if President Biden would sign the bill if it gets to his desk, but it tried to defend Biden's work in informing the American public by saying. It's hard to take a look at what the president has done here in terms of declassifying and making public information already in terms of the constant and consistent briefings to members of Congress. And upon being pressed on if Biden has been letting China slide, the White House insists. Nobody's letting anything slide. That's why the president wants the intelligence community to work so hard to, to get to, hopefully, to get some, to some answers. The bill now moves to the House, but it's unclear if it'll pass as some House Democrats say they oppose the bill as matters of declassification should be handled by the executive branch. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Russia's foreign minister for the first time since the war in Ukraine began. The two met on the sidelines of the G20 foreign ministers meeting, which was held in India this week. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. Secretary of State Antony Blinken previously said he had no intention of meeting Russia's foreign minister at this year's G20 meeting of foreign ministers in India. But on Thursday, when Blinken got the chance, he reportedly approached Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov on the sidelines of the meeting. Blinken shared what the two discussed. I told the foreign minister uh, what I and so many others said last week at the United Nations and what so many G20 foreign ministers said today. End this war of aggression. Engage in meaningful diplomacy that can produce a just and durable peace. Blinken said they also discussed nuclear weapons. Last week, Russian President Vladimir Putin said Russia will stop participating in the nuclear arms control agreement between Russia and the U.S., known as the New START Treaty. It sets verifiable limits on the nuclear arsenal of the United States and Russia. I urge Russia to reverse its irresponsible decision and return to implementing the New START Treaty. Mutual compliance is in the interest of both our countries. It's also what people around the world expect from us as nuclear powers. Blinken also said it would be a serious problem if China provides weapons to Russia. And on Tuesday, Lavrov responded to some of what Blinken said. This is not about Ukraine. The thing is that our Western colleagues want to prove to everyone that they will still resolve any issues. As for those threats against the People's Republic of China, I have doubts about the adequacy of those who are making those threats. And the day before, he said Russia and India, quote, oppose colonial practices like unilateral sanctions. India, which hosted the G20 meeting, has not blamed Russia for the war in Ukraine. And at the same time, India has increasingly purchased more Russian oil. India's foreign minister added this. In considering these issues, we may not all, always be of one mind. In fact, there are some matters 
of sharp differences of opinions and views. Yet, we must find common ground and provide direction because that is what the world expects of us. Jason Perry, NTD News. Jurors heard final defense arguments today in the high-profile murder trial of former South Carolina attorney Alec Murdoch. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Jurors will decide the fate of disbarred former South Carolina lawyer Alec Murdoch after hearing closing arguments Thursday from the defense. Murdoch has pleaded not guilty to killing his wife and youngest son in June 2021. But before the defense gave its final arguments, State Judge Clifton Newman replaced a juror. So the juror has had contact or discussions concerning the case with at least three individuals, uh, though it does not appear that the, the conversations were that extensive, it did involve the juror offering her opinion. In closing arguments, the defense said law enforcement failed to investigate hair found in Murdoch's wife's hand, and they didn't take fingerprint evidence or test DNA on the victim's clothes. And we believe that we've shown conclusively that SLED failed miserably in investigating this case. And had they done a competent job, that Alec would have been excluded from that circle year ago, two years ago, they had decided that unless we find somebody else, it's going to be Alec. Unless we find somebody else, it's going to be Alec. The prosecution argued Wednesday the former lawyer had lied about his whereabouts. The defense explained why. But he lied. He lied because of his drug paranoia kicked in and he was clearly in the throes of addiction. He lied for all those reasons. But what he didn't lie, what he didn't lie for is because he was covering up the fact that he killed Maggie and Paul. That is not the reason he did it. He also argued the prosecution fabricated evidence to justify charging the suspect, saying there's no direct evidence of him doing anything. The jury is now deliberating Murdoch's fate. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Tennessee is set to ban drag show performances on public property. State lawmakers just passed a bill targeting the events. The Tennessee State Senate passed a bill today along party lines to limit, quote, adult cabaret performances on public property. The State House passed the bill last week, and Republican Governor Bill Lee has said he will sign it. Once signed, the bill would go into effect July 1st. Violators would be faced with a misdemeanor and repeat offenders with a felony. Proponents of the bill say drag performances expose children to inappropriate sexual themes and imagery. Opponents argue that the bill is discriminatory against the LGBT community. Nearly a dozen similar bills are currently working their way through other state legislatures. Tennessee would become the first state to enact such a law. And in health news, as U.N. delegates meet in Geneva this week to mull the draft of a global pandemic accord, the United States negotiator says the U.S. is committed to forming the accord as part of a major component of the global health architecture for generations to come. The draft document does paint a big vision and sets out major commitments for member countries to achieve it. So let's take a closer look. 
Earlier today, I spoke with Dr. Scott Atlas, a former White House Coronavirus Task Force advisor and now senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, for his insights. Dr. Scott Atlas, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Jerry, happy to be here. Now, the U.S.'s lead negotiator in the WHO's pandemic accord, Ambassador Pamela Hamamoto, said this week the U.S. is committed to it even amid debate on the draft. Does a public commitment like this, even before concerns have been settled, sound any alarms for you? Well, it doesn't seem very responsible, considering this is uh, at least said to be going toward a legally binding agreement, uh, because if it's a treaty, that requires congressional approval, uh, but this is not intended to be a treaty. It is a legally binding agreement, sort of like what I understand the Paris uh, Climate Accord was. So it's very concerning. We need to know the details, of course. And what deal breakers do you see that haven't yet been settled, in your view? Well, there are several things that are big issues, and then there are issues with any sort of legally binding agreement with the World Health Organization and pandemic management. First of all, there's no uniformity on the even definition of a public health emergency. So when you're going to invoke emergency measures, you must be very clear about what constitutes the emergency, the necessary components of it, but also the time limits of it. The second problem is from what I understand from the drafts of this, one of them is there is a specific uh, takeover in part of intellectual property. For instance, there's a requirement uh, in the drafts of this document about uh, part of the intellectual property, it's required to be allocated to all countries. There's also a requirement of price caps, for instance, in things that are really, uh, you know, in, uh, controlled by, uh, in, the, in our country, uh, market uh, dynamics. And then, you know, we could look at some of the much bigger issues. I mean, first of all, we're talking with the WHO. They've been a gross failure in the management of this pandemic. They, they carefully say they are number one in their document is a concern about national sovereignty, yet they then go ahead and all signers are giving up the sovereign decisions that are necessary to an organization that had repeated failures. I'll give you an example. Number one, they were uh, corrupt and, in fact, agreed with China's cover-up of information. They said China was being very transparent early on. They agreed with China when China said there was no human-to-human -human transmission with this virus. They agreed with China when China blocked the inspection of their laboratory. Secondly, the WHO is influenced dramatically by the funders of the WHO. So unless you agree with the funding uh, desires of the funders, the WHO uh, is not serving your needs. The largest funder is the United States, uh, but one of the largest funders is Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And they, with that money, determine what the WHO does. And so unless you agree with that, uh, you know, that, that may or may not be in your country's interest. Other problems with the World Health Organization, if I may go on, are that they uh, have failed in previous emergencies. They've grossly failed. They were exaggerating the H1N1 danger. They were understating the and slow to react with the Ebola pandemic. Uh, They've gone way overboard in what their whole mission is. They, they, make, they have been criticized for making strange declarations about cancer risks. 
and things like this. So, and frankly, they have ideological bias. Uh, Tedros, who's the director general of the World Health Organization, uh, early on, and when he first took over in say 2017, I think it was, was uh, really uh, influenced heavily in aligning himself with China. Okay, that that's not in the interest of the United States. So how binding is this accord, really? It's explicitly stated very clearly this is intended to be a legally binding accord. Second point is accords can be legally binding. Uh, that's why they're avoiding calling it or uh, using it as a quote-unquote treaty, because in the United States, a treaty has a specific definition that requires significant congressional oversight as well as approval. And so I think that's intentional to call it an accord rather than a treaty to circumvent that. And uh, the third is in the detail of the wording, the third issue about how binding is it. Because if the wording, uh, there are many parts in this accord draft that use a, a word shall, and then it says, or should. And when you say should do something, that's a judgment, that's a recommendation, that's a desire. When you say shall, uh, that means it must be done. No, no individual or nation could conceivably, in my mind, uh, logically agree to a binding agreement without seeing the exact wording of that agreement. But you certainly need to see it to determine how binding and what specifically is binding. Now, a number of Republican senators have introduced a bill to stop the administration from signing on to treaty-like agreements with the WHO without a Senate supermajority in support. What do you think should be done to ensure the integrity of U.S. democracy amid negotiations like this accord? Well, I think, uh, you know, we need to stop these sort of executive order-driven uh, agreements, uh, because all that does is, what you say, circumvent the natural input of the people in a democracy. We need to see more and more pressure on the current administration to make sure that everything that is in this agreement is publicly vetted, publicly aired. And when the public gets a hold of this kind of information, I think the concerns are, are very visible and justifiable. And so, you know, that's the point of having a, a democracy is that the public gets to in, have the input into how they are governed. Dr. Scott Atlas, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford and former White House Coronavirus Task Force advisor. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, remember you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes has given birth to her second child. She says she should be allowed to delay her prison sentence start date since she now needs to care for her newborn. And in golf, new changes are coming soon to the PGA Tour. But will this be enough to keep its top players from defecting? We'll have that story and more coming up. Over to California, residents in mountainous regions are still trapped by the recent winter storm. Governor Gavin Newsom is declaring a state of emergency in over a dozen counties. The declaration covers 13 counties, including Los Angeles and Santa Barbara. 
San Bernardino County is among the hardest hit. Authorities there had conducted almost 100 rescues by Wednesday evening. The California National Guard has been deployed to help dig out communities in the mountains trapped by the heavy snow. According to the National Weather Service, some parts of California received more than 100 inches in the last week. And another winter storm is expected to move into Northern California this weekend. According to PowerOutage.us, over 70,000 homes and businesses remained without power in the state today. And staying in California, Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes, who was convicted for fraud over her company, has recently given birth to her second child. She's citing her recently born child as another reason she should be allowed to delay the start of her prison sentence. Court documents filed last week in a San Jose courtroom in advance of a March 17th hearing confirmed the birth of Elizabeth Holmes' second child. Holmes is hoping to remain free during an appeals process that could take years to complete. She is citing her recently born child as another reason she should be allowed to delay the start of her more than 11-year prison sentence. The filing didn't disclose the date of birth or the child's gender. But the news isn't a surprise. 38-year-old Holmes was pregnant at the time of the November 18th sentencing, where a jury convicted her on four felony counts of fraud and conspiracy. In addition to her children, her lawyers are contending that an array of mistakes and abuses made during her trial make it likely her conviction will be overturned. They also point to Holmes' unblemished record. Her lawyers say, while free on bail during the four and a half years since her criminal indictment, she isn't a flight risk or a danger to the community. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. The PGA has announced significant changes to their format coming next season as eight designated events will soon feature roughly half the normal participants but without a weekend cut. Now, typically, PGA events start with approximately 150 players, and after two rounds, usually only the top 70, plus ties, survive the cut. Those who don't make it simply get no paycheck. The move seems to be in response to the upstart Live Golf League model, which has pushed a number of former PGA players with events that feature three rounds, no weekend cuts, bigger purses, and everyone, including the last place finisher, is guaranteed a six-figure payout. So the PGA Tour was probably smart enough to realize that if they didn't take some kind of action in a timely manner, the brain drain on their top players would continue. And if that were to happen, then what they have left would be left less of a field to sell as an inducement to sponsors to put up with the money that they're putting and for average people to tune in on a Saturday and Sunday and watch the event. So the tour had its hand forced in this particular matter. James Ward, who's a senior editor for Golf Today, points out that though this guarantees payouts for everyone in these events, the smaller field and more stringent inclusion list could potentially alienate up-and-coming golfers whose shorter track record might make for a tougher time in qualifying for the events. It's sort of like in baseball, if we're going to cater to Justin Verlander, well, we must also cater to the guy who just came up from AAA, who's the shortstop, and maybe this is the next superstar. And we've got to make sure that we have a window in which that new player can join the ranks of the elite player. The designated events will also feature higher total purse amounts and more points awarded individually 
towards the FedEx Cup playoff standings. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has four games planned featuring the defending champion Golden State Warriors with red-hot sharpshooter Klay Thompson, who's averaged nearly 30 points a game since the All-Star break. They host the LA Clippers. And finally, for you hockey fans, 10 NHL games are on for tonight, including a new-look Rangers squad as former MVP Patrick Kane will make his team debut. They host the Ottawa Senators at Madison Square Garden. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.